It's all about helping your organizations get better, stay competitive. And at the core, I always suggest to new people going into the HR field, start out in recruiting. If you understand what brings people to your organization, how to get them there, what motivates them, what motivates them to stay as opposed to leave, those things will stay with you the rest of your life, regardless of what you do. When future talent is deciding to apply for a job, what are their most important considerations? Well, if they're like most of us, right after the job description and salary range, your employee benefits page is going to be next. The reason is simple. Employees directly relate benefits to their overall perception of well-being. And HR leaders are constantly adapting their benefit offerings to meet the needs of their evolving workforces. But let's be honest, some employee benefits are way more interesting than others. Hi, I'm Andrea Heron, Head of People for WebMD Health Services, and I'd like to welcome you to the HR Scoop. On this podcast, I talk with other HR leaders to explore the world of unique employee benefits and about the challenges of managing unique workforces, because well-being isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. Today's interview is one of my favorites. I'm joined by Isaac Dixon, Associate Vice President of HR for Portland State University, and we talk about all things career and life. From his military background, to the pandemic's impact on higher education, to the amazing wisdom his grandma has for all of us, Isaac shares a lifetime's worth of HR experience and learnings in this amazing episode. Welcome, Isaac. We are so happy to have you here today. I know we have seen each other at various events in the Portland HR community, and I am thrilled to have you here to share your wisdom with our listeners. Well, thanks for inviting me. A pleasure to be with you. Yeah, we have so much to talk about. I don't even know where to begin, but maybe we should start at the beginning. And you've had a long career in the Army and then transitioned into the HR community. And I am very curious about that journey and um, how you kind of got to where you are. Uh, You know, as you mentioned, I guess the last 14 years of my military career were in the uh, Oregon Army National Guard here in Portland, uh, Portland area. And uh, I entered the Guard as an enlisted soldier, and four or five years later, they decided it was time for me to go to officer candidate school, uh, an idea that I was not all that hot on because officers pay for everything. Many people don't know <laughs> that, but uh, uniforms, meals, uh, everything they pay for. Wow, I did yeah. not know that. I, 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 I've never understood it, but I said, what the heck? So I ended up uh, at OCS and uh, was subsequently commissioned a second lieutenant and uh, came back to Oregon. And um, my first uh, job in the Guard as an officer was as the Battalion S1, that is the personnel officer for the 218 Field Artillery, which ah. is located right out by the Portland Air Base. From there, uh, I ended up uh, as a platoon leader, and then subsequently I wound up as the uh, company commander for the headquarters company of the 41st Infantry Brigade, Uh, and that was uh, about 600 soldiers that I commanded. Many of them were officers who outranked me, 
because headquarters companies are comprised of soldiers, many of whom don't really want to be in the Army, um, <laughs> doctors, uh, uh, lawyers, MP platoons. I mean, so it was a very large unit. And there I reported directly to the brigade commander, General uh, uh, Osborne. And General Osborne pulled me aside uh, one afternoon, and we sat down and talked, and he said, you were commissioned late. Uh, I was 31 when I was commissioned. That's the oldest you can be commissioned an officer in the United States uh, military. And he said, and I looked at your record. Uh, I looked at your um, uh, experience, combat experience and other experience. And he said, I think uh, you really can go places uh, in terms of your career. He said, so uh, I'm going to remove you from the uh, headquarters commander job uh, after your tour of duty is up, and I'm going to make you my aide. And I said, aide? What, what's that? And so he explained what an aide-de-camp uh, responsibility was, and I decided to take the job. And subsequently, uh, I wound up being called to Salem after I'd been in, in, the, in the job as a, his aide for about a year. I got called to be in Salem uh, uh, on a Sunday evening, uh, so the following uh, day, the Monday, and I said, why? And uh, the gentleman on the phone, uh, Colonel Thomas, uh, said, because the state agent general wants to talk to you. Oh. And I said, oh, what's that about? And he said, <laughs> uh, just be here and wear your dress green uniforms with all your ribbons and everything on them. So I show up in Salem the next morning, and I walk in, and I meet the state agent in general, General Reese who at the time at, uh, was 43 years old. He was the youngest general in the Army. And he said, I want to remake the Oregon Army Guard. He said, there's not enough uh, officers of color. There are not enough women. Uh, I want you to help me change the guard. Wow. And I said, okay, how do I do that? He <laughs> said, uh, I want you to be Secretary General staff. I want you to run my staff for me. Wow. And he said, uh, it is the second most powerful job in the, in, the, in the National Guard here in Oregon. And he was an Army Guard general, but he ran the Air Guard and the Army Guard, uh, uh, both. So uh, I was in that job for six years. I learned a lot about the Army, but I also learned a lot about state government because uh, he was a direct report to the governor. And I got to know the governor and her staff pretty well. Uh, it was the governor of Barbara Roberts at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, after I'd been in that role for about six years, uh, they wanted me to move into a job as the state personnel officer. I decided not to take that job because uh, the uh, state of Oregon executive department had called me. And they asked me to come run all staffing for all of Oregon state government. Oh, wow. uh, so uh, I, I took that job, and I was direct report to the governor and her chief of staff. I ran the recruitment for the first Oregon health plan director, the first lottery director. We restaffed uh, uh, the leadership at the Oregon Department of Revenue, uh, hired a state police superintendent, uh, and, and I had a very small team. I had a team of seven people. Two of them wrote and scored all the state exams. We ran a state leadership mentorship program. I mean, we got, we got a lot done with very few people. Sounds like it. Uh, so that kind of kind of launched me, uh, you know, back into the uh, HR world. I had moved to Portland originally in 1978 I, to uh, run the Manpower Temporary Service franchises here in Oregon. Oh. 
And uh, so I ran all the franchises here in the state and uh, grew the number from four offices to, I think, six uh, by the time I left. Uh, And one of my clients was the only reason I left Manpower. Uh, I worked for them for about four and a half years. And one of my clients, a little company called Blue Ribbon Sports, uh, asked me to come to work for them as an HR manager. And, and, and they were a good client. I, got, I had got to know the leadership uh, of that organization pretty well. And so I went to work for them. And a year later, they changed their name and became Nike. Oh, that little company. That little company. I think we've heard of that one. <laughs> so I, I worked for Nike twice. Uh, uh, my last uh, um, uh, uh, time with them was from 2000 to 2003. And I was the director of staffing for retail, global finance, IT, and I also ran the internship program. Oh. So I, I got to see all these bright young faces uh, who wanted to come to work for Nike. Uh, even in those days, Nike used to get 6,000 unsolicited applications a week. A week. Wow. Yeah. For all of our listeners who receive applications, our minds are blown right now. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> wow. What an incredible journey. It, it is interesting you mentioned, you know, back when you were in the Army and they wanted you to build a more inclusive and, you know, diverse guard. That was pretty forward thinking at the time. And yet here we are in 2020 and the themes of social justice and inclusion and diversity are just as prevalent, if not more so. And I'm curious if you see differences this time in business and culture impacts within the workplace, or if there's anything that, you know, these spotlights are positive or kind of just your perspective of how far we've come or not come. You know, I think as a, as a state, as a city, as a nation, um, in my lifetime, we've come a long way. My dad was in the Army, and so I grew up on military bases across the United States and all over the world. And I'll never forget, I was eight years old. My dad didn't like to fly. So in 1958, when we came back from Germany, we took a, a ship back across the Atlantic, 10 days. I'll never forget it. The rest of my family was traveling by rail, and I didn't get seasick. I was the only one that didn't. But we landed in New York, and we... We ended up on a Greyhound bus from New York to Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah. That's a long bus ride. Whole nother story, but oh yeah. But one of the places where they stopped was in Texas. And that was the first time in my life I had ever seen a segregated lunchroom. My dad was a criminal investigator in the Army, a CID agent. Um, they're the Army equivalent of the FBI. Matter of fact, they train at the same school in Quantico, Virginia. And um, my dad was a man of short patience, uh, having survived World War II and Korea. And so he walked up to the counter in in the Post House restaurant. I'll never forget this as long as I live. And it was kind of like one of those Eddie Murphy movies where he walks in and the music stops. (laughs) Uh, He said, I'd like to order some food for my family. And the guy behind the counter said, we don't serve people like you here. You have to go to a room back in the back. So I'll never forget. I go back there, you know, and I get up on my tiptoes to look over the window pane, and I see a pitcher of water sitting on the counter and flies on the top of it. Dead flies. 
So I went back to my dad. I said, we can't eat in there. That place is awful. My dad said, we're not going to. Turns back to the guy and says, I'm going to ask you for the last time. Uh, I want some food for my family. Down at the end of the counter, somebody said, N-word, get back on the bus before we drag you out of here. My dad had this habit when he got irritated of putting an unlit cigar in the corner of his mouth and starting to chew on it. The cigar went in. I said, oh, this is not good. He pulled his coat back where they could see the gold star pinned to his belt and his 38 strap to his hip. He said, I'm a federal law enforcement officer. You feed my family, I'll have federal troops here in 15 minutes, and I'll own your damn restaurant. Which is it? You want pickles on them hamburgers was the reply. Wow. The rest of the trip, my, t- my dad talked to me about segregation. He uh, talked to me about the Civil War and Reconstruction. And he said, you've been born into a fight that you'll be in the rest of your life. My grandmother was an amazing woman. She lived to be 97. She was the first woman graduate from UCLA. And she was a history buff. And that's where I got my love of history from. She started handing me books when I was like five, six years old and said, you got to read this because you need to understand context of everything that you're going to see. We still have work to do uh, as demonstrations and protests have pointed out this summer. Uh, And certainly younger people um, have grown up in a different world. The instantaneous availability of information uh, has been one of the real remarkable things of my lifetime. Uh, When I think back to the uh, uh, 1956 when I saw the first color television set, Right. With the huge cabinet and the screen that's like about now there's big. one in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just uh, it. I mean, so um, I am extremely hopeful. You know, in addition to my role at Portland State as the associate VP for HR, uh, I teach at Portland State. I teach HR, and I've taught there for 17 years. And every year, the students. Um, Uh, never cease to amaze me with the new perspectives they have on issues and how to solve problems. So I'm, uh, it it just, it it leaves me hopeful. Well, that's great, because I think we all want to feel a little bit of hope here (laughs) in 2020. And, you know, if I think to your grandmother living to be 97, and the amount of change that she saw in her life, and even the amount of change that you have already seen in your life, it is incredible and really highlights the importance of those family stories, as well as the power of supportive teachers. And that is undeniable in shaping and molding different way of thinking and change that we need to grow as a country, you know, through people like yourself with these lived experiences, talking to, you know, young people and and future leaders of, of businesses and nonprofit boards and politics. Um, So with everything, you know, pandemic wise, and including higher education and PSU, I'm sure the academic world has been rocked by this, and not able to continue. So how, you know, how is it going? How is education being transformed? What are your thoughts on this next, this next group of students? And how are they coping? I think in the near term, and by near term, I would mean the next 24 to 36 months, 
it will be difficult, if not impossible, to go back to a highly leveraged face-to-face model. I think it's going to be extremely difficult to do uh, and to do safely. I think class sizes will be smaller, you know, just from the fact that even if you have an in-person class, you want to have some uh, social distancing. So you can't cram 100 people into a lecture hall anymore. I just don't think, I don't think, I think those days, at least for the near term, are gone. Post-vaccine, who knows? But um, I'd say for the next couple of three years, it's going to be difficult to do. Colleges and universities are really struggling right now because their business model is built around the face-to-face experience. Everything from classrooms to dormitories to cafeterias to parking structures. And see, they get income from all of those sources, and that what's called auxiliary income, so that's anything other than tuition, has fallen off the map. It's fallen by almost 90% at Portland State. Wow, 90%. If if anybody thinks of 90% revenue loss, wow, what a tailspin that would be. And campuses are like little cities. Exactly. So that makes sense. Exactly. You got to eat, you got to sleep somewhere, you got to put your car somewhere, you got to maybe have a gym that's probably not open. Uh, a student rec center that's been yeah. that's been closed. Um, intercollegiate athletics which brings people to the campus. Um, that is off the map. Um Got those hot dog uh, revenue. Conferences and events. Uh, We have a hotel on the Portland State campus. uh, And uh, they've been at 4% occupancy since March. 4%. By the way, the Portland area average for hotels uh, occupancy is 7%. 7%. I mean, it's not surprising yet 7% is. Wow. Yeah, that's... And that's in a business where you have to average 60% per night just to break even. So it's a, mm. yeah. so with all those revenue sources drying up, people say, well, just the state should step in and help you. But the state revenue is down because look how many people we have unemployed who aren't paying taxes. I mean, so this it's this kind of gerbil wheel kind of thing going on. So I think that what uh, universities are finding out is that uh, – uh, bolster uh, online educational offerings. We've had to purchase uh, at, at PSU, and I talked to my colleagues at other schools, they've done similar things. Um, we po- purchased over a thousand Chromebooks since uh, m- March um, for students that didn't have access to, to a computer. Mobile hotspot devices, uh, we purchased those as well. Um, so the student could pretty much study and do their work anywhere. The biggest changes has been for professors, especially for many of them who've been teaching for a long time. Right. Who like this, this, I can't do this online stuff. Um, it's a big shift. It, it's, it's a huge shift. And sudden. Yep. Yep. It's like totally yeah. redo everything you've done for the past 15 years in a new format yesterday. Okay, go. Yep. And do it now <laughs> and, uh, and make it good. Um, uh, I've seen, uh, I've seen some remarkable, uh, uh, our, our university has an office of academic innovation and they had put together courses for professors about how to move your class online and the kinds of best practices for distance learning that you ought to look to incorporate in your class structure. They get to be students again. 
I, I, I love it. Um, uh, for me, I try to, uh, uh, to make sure that, um, that my students stay engaged. Uh, I use a platform outside of our uh, distance to learn platform, which is our basic platform on campus. I use another one. Uh, called Packback, where I send them to a the Packback website. They log on there. They have to post one question for their colleagues and respond to two others every week. Now, that sounds easy, but it makes it a little more challenging when you have the one that you have to post of your own and two, because the system moderates and says, this is really kind of a lightweight question. You know, here's some yeah. suggestions about things you might want to add. And you also have to have an APA cited reference for every question. Oh, I'm having flashbacks to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So some of my students send me hateful notes after the first week. Um, but, you know, it's good rehearsal because they have a project paper that's due at the end of the year. And I require APA citations in the project paper. Right. So this kind of reinforces it every week. I've been using that platform for five years or so. I have data that shows clearly my foreign students or English as a second language students actually do do the best. Oh, interesting. Because they actually read the material and they actually pay attention to instructions. So. Shocking how that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> Got to put in the work. But yeah, the things like that are really helpful. There are amazing tools being developed by really smart people. And as students, as faculty, as staff members, as human beings, we just have to be willing to change. No one saw this coming in, in March. <laughs> I sure didn't. No. And um, flexibility is the hallmark of being able to survive. You have to be able to change. And humans don't always have the easiest time with change, no. especially in the collective. So kind of with all of these shifts in culture and how organizations are operating and remote life, what advice have you been giving to those in your class or that you're mentoring that are interested in a career in HR, given how much HR has evolved in the past six months alone and kind of how we see it continuing to evolve and be more flexible and remote? the model of HR also has to shift. So have you been you know, giving out any specific advice or tips or anything you'd like to share to help us all in this moment? <laughs> well, what I've been telling um, uh, newly minted HR professionals or those who aspire to go into the profession, don't let what's happened change you pursuing your passion. If you love numbers, if you love data, um, then compensation analysis remains one of the highest paid areas um, uh, in uh, HR. Benefits administration, another key place where someone with an HR background can do very, very well. Data analytics. Um, every HR team needs a data geek. Uh, I have a couple of them on my team at Portland State, and they do amazing work because more and more we're going to be called on to help organizations make fact-based decisions. Uh, at, at most colleges and universities, PSU is no exception, 90 cents of every dollar spent are people-related costs, salaries, benefits, et cetera. So the more we can use data to help our organizations and leaders make 
fact-based decisions, the better. And that's the way the world has shifted, regardless of industry. The days of HR being the place where people who, anytime I have students says, you know, I want to go into HR because I really like people, I tell them, <laughs> become a homicide detective. Your odds are better of liking people if you did that, you know. Um, uh, you know, a few years in employee and labor relation to something else, they walk away shaking their head. So, uh, you know, it's not enough to just be a, a, a you know, uh, in many small companies still, the HR people are the people who plan the Christmas party. Right. It's, it's all about helping your organizations get better, stay competitive. Um, and at the core, I always suggest to new people going into the HR field, Start out in recruiting. If you understand what brings people to your organization, how to get them there, what motivates them, what motivates them to stay as opposed to leave, those things will stay with you the rest of your life, regardless of what you do. And uh, my team laughs at me because I'm still, I'm still a recruiter. I, I have never, I, I think back to the days of manpower when we had jobs we had to fill. You know, you, you you have to be able to bring talent into your organization. And if people are thinking about leaving, understand why. There is great wisdom in that and, you know, encouraging people to stay true to themselves and their interests because that's where the passion will follow. And then you can learn the skills and, and yep. back it up. So we have learned a lot about you and lots of great tidbits. And I was wondering to close it up if there was one more nugget you could give us that uh, somebody may not know about you or that would be interesting for our audience. Hmm, interesting nugget. Probably that in uh, 1969, the year I graduated from high school, actually earlier in that year, uh, my grandmother she had this habit of getting me involved in things and just to stretch myself, try something different. That was her, her mantra of life. So she called me and she said, I saw this story in the paper and I think this is something you might be interested in doing. So I said, oh, okay. She said, so come on over. She only lived a few blocks from uh, where my parents did. So uh, I walked over spring day in 1969 and she has this newspaper spread out on her kitchen table and said, read that. I read it. It's about this new show, a uh, television show, and they're having an audition uh, the following day. It's a show called The Dating Game. <laughs> Was she trying to get you a date? <laughs> so I, I get on the bus and ride out there, and uh, there's, like, there's like 600 people, you know, uh, this mass cattle call that they have. And they broke us down into groups of 10 or 15, and they had, you know, 15 men, 15 women, you know, asking questions back and forth. So I ended up being selected to go on the show. <laughs> so uh, so I, 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 Jim Lang was the host then. Uh, That's the original dating game show. So uh, I ended up being selected. Uh, and so I, 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 I won a date and I ended up g going to uh, some, some place, some resort in South Dakota. It's crazy. Oh, wow. Uh, so after, after the show aired, I got a call from uh, uh, the producers asking me to come back a second time, which I did. I ended up being on the show three times. Oh, we need this footage. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've looked, and thank God I can't find it anywhere. Because uh, my hair in those days, I looked like Michael Jackson. The oh, afro yes. was huge. Um, <laughs> they, they, they couldn't invite me back uh, after the third time because... 
there was a violation of the Screen Actors Guild regulations. Um, so he took me to meet a guy uh, who was producing a show called The FBI. And I ended up getting a bit part in that. And then subsequently, the Dick Clark show, uh, Where the Action Is, I ended up getting a bit part in that too. So uh, my dad was laughing. He kept saying, you know, get a real job. <laughs> and I said, hey, you know, they feed me as well as, as, as me making money. This is better than bagging groceries. But I did that for about 18 months. I made a living as an extra, wow. uh, all based on being on the dating game show. So that's something that not very many people know. Wow, I like your grandma. Oh, she yeah. sounds like a wonderful trailblazer, and I didn't know we had a TV star in our midst. <laughs> well, she also had this little game she played with me starting when I was 14. On Sundays, she would have a map, and she'd give me bus fare, and she said, your goal is to go to this point on the map and come back within a couple of hours and tell me the stories of three people you met on the bus. Wow. She said, you have to learn to talk to people you don't know. She said, the world's greatest library is outside your front door. Never forget that. She also taught me the importance of asking questions and then listening to people. In America, we're very verbal dominant. We don't listen as much as we talk. And everybody is carrying something. You don't know what until you ask them. It was the most important lesson I learned in my entire life. Thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, once we start riding the bus again and talking to people, I think we should really take that advice. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. It's been wonderful having you and we'll see you around. Thank you so much for having me. Take good care. Thank you for listening to the HR Scoop podcast. Please take a moment to rate and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or directly at webmdhealthservices.com slash podcasts.